Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today's Tuesday, August 18th. The S&P 500 is up to a new record high, the price of Bitcoin is down, and we're focused on efforts to hold companies accountable for the opioid epidemic. Prior to the pandemic, America's top public health crisis was opioid overuse and abuse. And opioids haven't gone away just because the coronavirus arrived. In fact, the situation may have gotten even worse. Two main reasons. First, people have been going to hospitals and regular medical providers less. Addiction treatment, too, all out of COVID fear. So many have used opioids to deal with pain that would otherwise be treated differently. Two, some people are simply in greater emotional and economic pain and have turned to opioids to self-medicate. The hard numbers on this, well, they come on a lag, but the Washington Post recently reported on a suspected 42% increase in national overdoses in May and said that some jurisdictions, like Milwaukee County, saw dispatch calls for overdoses increase more than 50%. While all of this goes on, makers of prescription opioids are gearing up to defend themselves against thousands of lawsuits brought by states, municipalities, and tribes. According to the AP, the plaintiffs in these cases estimate that the opioid epidemic has cost them $630 billion since 2007, and that the cost could nearly triple over the next 20 years. So in 15 seconds, we'll dig in with the AP's Jeff Mulvihill to understand the state of that litigation and what really comes next. But first, this. We're joined now by the AP's Jeff Mulvihill. So Jeff, a lot of us were paying a lot of attention to these lawsuits and then the pandemic hit and our attention got diverted. Can you give us the short story of what's been going on over the past five months? Not nearly as much has been going on as we expected it to pre-pandemic. The trials were put on hold. It looked like 2020 was going to be the year of many opioid trials and or settlements. They're all put on hold. Some are scheduled to happen starting next month and into the fall. But the trials really function as deadlines also for settlements. So while there may be settlement talks going on, we haven't seen any results yet, any deals announced. Is your expectation that we're going to see a mix of trials and settlements or that it's going to kind of tilt more towards trials or more towards settlements? We'll have to see how that plays out. But so far, there have been several settlements and just one trial on one of the government brought cases, and that was in Oklahoma last year. With Johnson & Johnson, you reported yesterday that the states have tallied up about $630 billion in costs associated with the opioid epidemic. That's a big number. Were you surprised by that one? I wasn't particularly surprised by it because there are lots of costs associated with this epidemic. States were talking about Medicaid costs, the cost to child welfare and criminal justice systems. And, you know, they certainly have a reason to make sure the number is bigger, not smaller when they're trying to tabulate these costs. With that, I'm curious, is it a number that you think that some of the defendants in this case or even others that have been kind of tangentially involved in opioids would dispute? Or do you think it's a kind of a, I guess, call it a valid number that everyone can agree that this is approximately the cost? You know, I have not heard from the defendants on that point yet. So I think that remains an open question. It is fairly clear that Settlements or judgments are highly unlikely to hit 
that amount. That's just an astronomical number. These companies don't probably have that much money. Purdue, for instance, which as the company that made OxyContin is the big guy, the settlement deal they have on the table would involve at least $3 billion in cash and be worth perhaps $10 billion or more over time. That is obviously a tiny portion of the damage that states say has been done to them. The Wall Street Journal uh, reported today that the states are seeking just over $26 billion, which, as you say, is a lot less than $630 billion. Is that kind of just the ceiling on how much money, for lack of a better term, they think is there? Or is that more a legal strategy of that's the most they think they could get via court processes? Again, I'm not completely clear on that because it, you know there's not total transparency when you're talking about negotiations and negotiating tactics. But it does seem like one of the big questions is, how much can these defendants pay and still remain in business? Obviously, there's lots of different states and municipalities and tribes that are suing. So there's lots of plaintiffs in this. Do you get the sense of that the state AGs that are driving this, do they care if these companies can or can't stay in business? It seems like there's not unanimity on that. And it also depends on the company. So if you have a company like Purdue, where it's basically been an opioid company. I think some states have indicated that they aren't that concerned where others are concerned. And the proposed settlement is structured so that the value of the company would become part of the deal. So there would be some incentive to keep it alive. Purdue obviously late last year, 2019, filed for bankruptcy protection. Does that have an impact at all on the settlement talks with them? Because obviously once somebody's filed for bankruptcy, even liabilities are now kind of subject to a bankruptcy court. Sure. They filed for bankruptcy as a means to reach a settlement. So they got buy-in from about half of the state attorneys general on that deal. And it's a structured bankruptcy plan. They really have virtually no liabilities other than these thousands of lawsuits they're facing. Speaking of the thousands of lawsuits, Jeff, you're right. There's lots of them, some coming up, some will be in the future. Are there you know, one or two that you're particularly interested in and that either because you think they'll be bellwethers or just because there's something unique about them? I think the next one is always the most interesting one. So a few on the calendar, there are federal trials currently scheduled for September and November, I believe, in West Virginia and in Cleveland. We're also seeing some hearings that are a prelude to a state court trial in New York State. It's not exactly clear when that trial would happen, however. Final question for you is about the epidemic itself. Has the pandemic itself worsened the opioid crisis? For example, we we see overdoses are way up this year. Right. We do see that overdoses have risen this year. The, The most solid numbers we have are on the counts still pre-pandemic. So we do have some state-by-state counts showing that uh, the numbers are up. We have lots of anecdotes indicating that's the case. There will be a number of good explanations for that. People are still getting drugs, that it's harder to get into treatment during the pandemic. Numbers rising in 2019 compared with the previous couple of years where they've been relatively flat for the first time. I'm wondering, though, so if that's the case, if the numbers were rising in 2019, if they were rising in 2020 pre-pandemic, and anecdotal evidence at least suggests it gone up even more during the pandemic, does that suggest that the plaintiffs in this are basically just sticking fingers in the dam, right? Because in theory, you're suing in part to get money, but you're also suing in part to slow down the flow of opioids and to slow down overdoses or, or overuse at least. I think that the, the defendants would explain, as almost everybody does, there have been different waves of the opioid epidemic. And what's currently killing people is largely illicit fentanyl. 
They might argue whether there's a straight line between their products, which are legal prescription products, and the illegal drugs that are by and large killing people today. But it's not their products that are the most deadly thing at the moment. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is SpaceX, which disclosed in a regulatory filing that it's raised nearly $2 billion in new private funding, with Bloomberg reporting a valuation of around $44 billion. I asked Axios Space reporter Miriam Kramer about why SpaceX still keeps raising so much money and what the company's most significant accomplishment has been so far in 2020. Building a city on Mars is not cheap. That would be one part of it. But I think the more immediate concern is they have a lot of irons in the fire right now. For example, they are trying to build out their Starlink satellite network, which will beam broadband down to the Earth. And then they're also building Starship, which is the interplanetary vehicle that they want to send people to Mars and deeper space places at this point. Plus, you know, your average rocket launches are, are not super cheap. Space is a super capital intensive industry. Like you need a lot of money up front in order to get anything to pay off later. They successfully launched people and brought them back to Earth for NASA. And it was an incredibly smooth mission with perhaps one of the, the most iconic space quotes I've ever heard after landing, which was, thank you for flying SpaceX. Today, we're also continuing to watch the US Postal Service which we discussed in yesterday's show with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. The latest is Postmaster General Louis DeJoy saying that USPS will not make any more operational changes before the November election. Expect him to be grilled pretty hard on that pledge when testifying Monday in front of Maloney's House Oversight Committee, particularly on the part where he doesn't promise to roll back changes that have already been made. And finally today, we're watching Walmart which reported very strong second quarter sales, but warned that much of that growth came from stimulus benefits that have since expired. Without another stimulus package, that fabled phase four that remains stuck in endless political limbo, the Q3 numbers for Walmart may look very, very different. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Fajitas Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.